On episode 14 of Unmet Need, I interview Matt Steer. Matt is the managing director and co-head of the healthcare investment banking team at Canaccord Genuity. Matt has 20 years of experience in public and private finance, buy side and sell side transaction, and has been doing fairness opinions in the healthcare sector. Before joining Canaccord in 2007, he worked in First Albany's healthcare investment banking group. Matt was instrumental in building their healthcare franchise into one of the most active boutique investment banks focused on the life science sector. Matt was head of the West Coast investment banking efforts as well. Before this, he worked in the mergers and acquisitions group at Robertson Stevens, focusing on the life science practice and also worked at Payne Weber. Matt graduated with a master's of business administration from the University of Virginia and earned a BA from St. Lawrence University. All right, Matt Steer, so glad you could be on Unmet Need today. The episode's one I've been looking forward to quite a bit because the practice that you lead at Canaccord is not only is it something that I'm in the midst of now, but I think for healthcare entrepreneurs and, and builders of these companies, if you can cross this gauntlet of being able to raise capital, scale a business to the point where you've actually created demand to even consider initial public offering or even maybe a sale of the business, it's something very exciting that few people get to. And should you approach that, they get to meet with you and your team at Canaccord. So thanks for making the time. And if you don't mind, before we just jump into it, tell us a little bit about your background and put it on a timeline for us. How did you get into investment banking? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited. This is my first podcast, so I'm especially excited. But um, So I've been in banking for about 20 years now, and I, I got into finance after going to business school at Virginia and uh, did an internship that summer between my first and second year. And, you know, I was working 110 hours a week and it was just, I just loved it. So <laughs> decided that's what I wanted to do and um, started out in New York and, um, and migrated pretty quickly to healthcare and then more specifically to, to med tech because I really liked the tangible nature of it, you know, with devices versus biotech. And I've been at Canaccord now for over 15 years. Uh, based here in San Francisco, and I lead our effort in the med tech practice. And a um, big piece of our business has been bringing companies public, and um, it's been a pretty active market for the last few years. And excited to talk to you about it and and the opportunities there. Great. So you you said twenty years in investment banking. Yeah, a little over twenty years. So that would put it at about year two thousand. That would now when you decide to go the healthcare route. Was the dot-com bubble still inflating or it just popped and healthcare seemed like a good place to be? You know, I was in healthcare even during the bubble um, and I got into banking sort of at the tail end of the bubble. So I actually joined a firm called Robertson Stevens, which is no longer around, um, about a day before the NASDAQ peaked. So, so it was sort of funny timing, but... Uh, I had migrated to the, the healthcare group there and they were doing a lot in biotech and med tech. And so it was, even though it wasn't tech, it was still a pretty exciting time. Absolutely. Well, great. Our audience is very smart. However, I find that a lot of people don't know when they hear the term investment banking, it's like, what does that mean? Um, you've been kind enough to teach me over the years, but if you were to take this term investment banking and within the groups within your team, how should people think about it in general? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I think my adult children and my wife don't really even know what investment banking is after all these years. But it's, you know, it's not so much about investing, right? It's about helping companies to um, progress either through raising them capital privately, raising them capital in the public markets or finding a, a, a merger partner for them. So it's those three things that, you know, I spend most of my time on. And so we, we target um, growth companies, exciting growth companies with interesting technology in the med tech field. And those are the ones that are, you know, going to be attractive to institutional investors, to private investors, and also the larger companies that, that might acquire them. So, I spend my time building relationships with companies like Providence Medical, um, but also with the universe of potential investors and buyers. It always amazes me how 
you seem to have tabs on every company that's promising within healthcare. And um, I always enjoy our conversations and, and also like talking to Kyle Rose, who I think is one of the best research analysts in, in med tech. What is Kyle's role within the overall Canaccord firm? And how does that compare to what you do in the investment banking team? So Kyle is, is one of our lead research analysts and he covers, um, he covers a few sectors but including orthopedics and spine. And so his role is basically to find companies that are already public that he likes and to um, and that he has knowledge within that space and to um, have an opinion on them. And he provides that opinion to institutional investors. And so if he likes a company, you know, he'll have a buy rating. He'll say, you know, I think this company has great prospects in the market. And um, we, you know, we interact with him in very specific ways. But if we're involved in an IPO, one of the things that we vet internally is, is Kyle, if it's in his space, is he supportive of a deal? And um, we generally don't want to get involved with a company if he's not supportive because we think, a key part of um, you know being involved in IPO is to support those companies in the aftermarket, and especially as a, a bank like Canaccord, which is more of a mid-market growth-focused bank, we think it's really important, especially important, to support the companies that are sort of let's say sub two billion in market cap with strong research support. That makes sense. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. And then when people refer to an equity capital markets person, what is that role and how does that interact with the investment banking team and the research group? So I think it's probably a little bit different at each firm, but at Canaccord, our equity capital markets team is the group that um, gets involved with a, an equity financing. So if we're, let's say we're working on an IPO for Providence Medical, our equity capital markets team would be very involved if we're a book runner in sort of understanding the story, working as a liaison between banking and research to make sure that they're connecting all the dots, um, making sure that we're doing the right things, helping with some pre-marketing, test the water meetings. And at the end of the day, when you're in the actual deal process, the equity capital markets team is the, the group that talks to the institutional investors and works with our sales force to actually um, get the orders. So they'll, they'll organize the meetings and then get the orders for the actual book in an IPO or a follow-on offering as well. Excellent. So it's kind of nuanced, but they're, they're a critical uh, piece of the team. And, and we also have people within that group that are healthcare focused. So specialists that deal with med tech and biotech companies. Um, and then we have other specialists on the ECM team that deal more on the technology side. And those are our two main areas of focus. Understood. I think it, it is nuanced, but very clear description. So thanks. Yeah. And then the, the last question until we get into the market outlook, because it's really exciting time right now for capital markets, IPOs, SPACs. So I know you've prepared some materials and I can't wait to see them. The, the term you mentioned, uh, I think joint book runner or co-manager at the highest level, what does all that mean? And uh, for the people that like myself that have been embarrassed to ask in the past, <laughs> what, please explain that for us. Yeah. So when you, when you choose uh, banks to support you on an equity offering, whether it's an IPO or follow on, you generally will choose um, a group of banks called the syndicate. And within that syndicate, there are banks that are the book runners. So it could either be one bank or it could be multiple banks. Then you have, and those are the banks that are, are very involved. So they're the ones that would actually be um, out setting meetings for you, uh, interacting with the institutions uh, on your behalf. They'd be taking orders into the book. So the book runners are, you know, the most active piece of the book. And then you have below that, um, you know, there are different terminologies, but you can have lead managers, uh, you can have passive book runners. So I guess it would go passive book runners, lead managers, um, and then you have co-managers. And 
there's all different flavors in terms of how many banks you have involved and what the makeup is, uh, partially dependent on how big the deal is, how much money you're raising. Um, and the co-managers are generally less involved. Um, a lot of times those banks will be brought into a deal because they have strong research. So maybe not as involved in the actual nuts and bolts of the deal, but good aftermarket support. And at Canaccord, candidly, we play both roles or all, all of those roles, depending on the deal. Um, and a lot of times, if you look at sort of the larger IPOs that are done in med tech, there will be, you know, what we call bulge bracket banks that are sort of in the book runner position. And then smaller banks that would be sometimes book runner, sometimes lead manager, sometimes co-managers. So it's, there's a lot of different flavors, but hopefully that, that explains sort of the, the basics. Very much so. Thank you. All right. Well, great. Well, that backdrop, which I appreciate, tell us about the market. How are things looking right now? So um, the market is, well, why don't I pull up these materials? If that's okay. Please. And let's see. Okay. Can you see that? Yeah, it looks good. Good. Okay. So this is sort of, this is our strategist and, and his, his view of the market. And, you know, admittedly, Tony Dwyer is, has been bullish for a long time, but he's been mostly right. And I think his view is we're definitely um, seeing some volatility here right now in general. And I'm talking about the broad markets, just not just in healthcare. Um, but, you know, earnings. He expects earnings to be extremely strong in this quarter. And at the end of the day, uh, stock prices are driven by earnings. And so if earnings are positive, um, we're likely to see continued upward movement in the stock market. And that's what he's anticipating for uh, the rest of the year. I would say one, one thing that we have seen in, I mean, generally speaking, at the end of the year, if you have investors that have made good returns through this portion of the year, they're going to be a little bit more wary about putting their capital at risk as we, as we finish uh, you know, the last few months, because they're a little bit concerned that you know, if they have a bad month, they could ruin the, the positive returns they've already achieved. So I think we're seeing that a little bit, and we're starting to see a little bit more volatility in med tech specifically in some of those offerings, which, which I think we'll get to. Great. Thank you. Yep. So with the general overview, volatility is, you know, I, I'm looking at, I'm looking at the graph. If the, what is it? The VIX, is, is that a measure of volatility? And, and where is that today relative to, you know, maybe historical averages? So the VIX is at pretty, um, it's really right at the historical average right now. So we've seen an uptick here earlier in the year, and it's really come down um, more lately. So, um, you know, I think the volatility we've seen is really more um, as it relates to you know, offerings within the, within the market and specific to med tech, some of the recent deals have, um, you know, not performed as well. And I think some of the high flying companies, um, you know, the valuations have compressed a little bit and, you know, maybe I'll go to this page. So, you know, we'll dive in a little bit more to med tech. So this is a chart that we've, we've kept now for a few years and, and we think it's instructive of, sort of a paradigm shift within medtech. And this chart on the top is small cap, what we're calling small cap, 250 million to 2 billion market cap medtech companies. And where that aggregate uh, group has traded on an TEV to LTM revenue multiple over this essentially 10 year period. And, you know, historic averages um, about 4.7 times. And we've seen you know, I'd say like really since here, right? So since mid 18, these numbers overall have been well above the historic averages. And we recently hit an all time high of 7.61 times. 
again, I want to emphasize this is a, a basket of companies. So this isn't one or two companies. This is a basket of companies trading at this um, TEV to revenue multiple. Now, um, this dip here was, uh, was COVID. And um, this recent dip is sort of the volatility that, that I was talking about. Now, it's starting to recover a little bit. And we're still, again, well above um, historical levels. But I think it's interesting, you know, to note that essentially since this period in 2018, over three years, we've been in this sort of a new paradigm. And, um, and I, think, uh, I think it's something that has surprised a lot of people, myself included. And so if we look at a theoretical company where their last 12 months of revenue is $100 million dollars. Historically, they'd have an enterprise value of 470 something million, but that same company in this environment where there's such a premium for growth has a market cap of 700 or an enterprise value of 761 million. Yeah, about 700 now, but this was the peak was about 760. So yeah, that's a good way to think about it. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot, Jeff, which I've, I've probably talked your ear off about in the past is. One of the reasons for that is we look at IPOs as sort of a leading indicator, and, and this is the number of life sciences IPOs since 2010, almost 700, and about, only about 10% of those deals were in medtech. So the vast majority of these deals are in biotech. And so there is the scarcity values. So there's fewer medtech opportunities out there just because there's fewer you know, good companies that are ready to go public. But if you look at the performance of these deals on average, you know, it's almost 2x. So if you're an institutional investor, and let's say you invest in life science companies, if a med tech story comes, you're going to pay attention to it because you have the opportunity to get 2x returns, and you're only going to see one out of every 10 deals coming as a med tech company. So, so that's a dynamic that has continued and, and even more recently. You know, these numbers, if you look, this is 10 years, if you look back, you know, five years or three years, it's, it's a pretty similar dynamic. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of the audience are early stage med tech founders and David Cash of Medvest Capital, who sits on our board and was our early stage venture capital investor. You know, his fund can invest across all stages, but primarily they're the first check in. And the dynamic that he's seen is there's been so much allocation of capital in venture as an asset class to growth equity, commercial stage, later stage development of med tech companies. So that if you're able to finance maybe the first few years to a point where you have a regulatory clearance, products and patents, there are a number of, of options for good companies for that financing. It sounds like then if you can continue to scale and be a, a candidate for an IPO, there's a scarcity and it makes me wonder if the lack of early stage venture in med tech is really kind of pulling this down and it would stand to reason that this scarcity probably doesn't lift and could even get worse. It's interesting because I think, you know, if you think about like how long it takes a med tech company to, from, from starting the company to being like, let's say ready to go public, it's usually somewhere between, I think it's six and 10 years is the average, right? And so you think about the companies going public here, a lot of them were doing their initial financings back here on the market was, was really tough. And so I remember at this time, this is one of my worries about our business in general was if we're not funding these early stage opportunities, are we ever going to have a market, even going to have a market out here? And strangely, I think a lot of these companies, they showed their, um, you know, their flexibility, their willingness to figure out ways to get financed through non-traditional means, a lot of family offices, a lot of high net worth individuals. And so um, it's actually worked out, but I think it's a really good point. And I'm, I'm still curious if there will be another shoot to drop, although in the current market, it seems like we have a, a good backlog of very interesting medtech companies that should be able to sort of see this play out um, at least for a few more years as we sit here today. That's great. 
Yeah, I know that certainly that was our experience. I mean, we're in year 12 and the first few years, family office, high net worth individuals, because even early stage med tech, they write risky checks, but there has to be something there and it's yeah. in software. And I think one of the things that's helped med tech founders is the availability of venture debt, which, you know, maybe there was a handful of players 10 years ago. And now as debt funds have been able to attract, uh, you know, quite a, quite a bit of capital, it's a nice way to take a relatively small early stage check and extend it to maybe another couple of years of development. So anyway, yeah. well, this, this is great. So the key point here is there's a scarcity of med tech IPOs. And so a life science investor, you get double the return. So they, they take a hard look at the good ones. Yeah. Great. Keep rolling. So this is um, a little more on the med tech IPOs. And so this chart is um, essentially all the med tech IPOs 2010. And we looked at, at the revenue of these companies at the time they went public. So trailing revenue at the time of the IPO. And we bucketed the companies by the revenue, right? So this is six, this means 16 companies went public with less than 10 million in revenue at the time of deal. 12 were between, between 10 and 25, et cetera. And then we looked at the same corresponding companies and looked at what their promised growth was at the time of the deal. So the early stage companies, not surprisingly, they're, they need to promise higher growth because they're going off a smaller base and they're, you know, they're getting valuations that are a little more forward looking. As you get out to this sort of group, you see an average of 37%, 32%. And so it, it brings, brings us to the rule of thumb that we sort of use, which is if you're a med tech company and you want to go public, if you have 25 million of revenue and you're growing the top line over 25%, that's a, a good candidate in this market. And again, this market has now been going on for over three years. So that's, um, you know, that's, that's sort of the profile. And then the last thing, which again, I think is, is intuitive or expected is we looked at where, how these companies performed within each bucket. So the early stage deals, and again, these are all average um, performance. So the, the company went public at X price. We're looking as of today, where is their price? What is the return on that um, initial IPO price? So the early stage deals flat on average, essentially. And then when you get even the 10 to 25 million up over 100% and each group here up um, over 100%, and maybe also predictably the later stage companies, the most predictable ones that perform the best up 346%. So this is something that's, again, I think intuitive, but when we first put this together, um, we were sort of pleased to see that, you know, it's, it's definitely playing out the way we would have anticipated. And it helps us to sort of guide companies as they start to think about an IPO. Um, you know, how risky do they want to be? Do they want to try to do something on the early end? Um, or do they want to wait until they're, you know, much more into sort of the sweet spot or the middle of the fairway? Yeah, it's interesting. The first thing that jumps off the page is why is the performance for the 50 to $100 million in trailing revenue, you know, significantly less? And But as a company that's in the, you know, running Providence at 25 to 50 million, I imagine when you're guiding expectations to grow, you know, in the 30% range off of a $30 million business and your enterprise value is seven times. So it's easier with the amount of capital you're likely able to raise in the IPO to put that money to work and grow 30% off a $30 million business than a $75 million business. Is, does that have anything to do with it or am I thinking about it wrong? No, I mean, I think that could have something to do with it. I, I sort of think about this as, look, even though this is a significant time frame, these are still relatively small numbers. So if within this group, right, like there's 12 companies, if you have one that ends up having some issues and has a, a strongly negative return, it, it will affect these. So I sort of think about it more holistically, like, you know, this group has been very positive on average. And so in general, if you sort of get out there and you execute, you're going to have a good, 
um, a good stock performance. That makes sense. So it's more just that all these companies are up over 100%. And what's the time horizon, Matt, for this average stock performance? So it's not a perfect um, analysis in that regard, because this is just every company from when they went public to where they are as of the latest, um, you know, as of today, essentially. So, you know, you could have a company that went public in 2002 that is up, you know, 10%. But it's been a long time, so that's not exactly a good return. So we didn't we we didn't do sort of the IRR on this, but I think it's still in terms of just you know understanding the the general trends. We think it's really helpful. Yeah, I mean, at, at worst, if you went public in 2010, the company doubled its value in 10 years, more or less. So that makes yeah. sense. Okay. All right. So this is um this is just a little bit more about you know, why I think the way I think about this is why are more companies and more private company investors thinking about the IPO market versus historically, there was a a really strong preference for um, private investors to say, look, we don't want to deal with going public. There's too much volatility. There's too much execution risk. And, And they'd rather just sell and, you know, get a good return. But what we've seen in this more recent market is companies can go public at, you know, pretty decent multiples. And then if they execute, they can really expand these multiples. And again, these are these are averages here um, on forward multiples. But we'll show later there are a lot of companies and, and we showed in the in that initial chart, there's a lot of companies trading well in excess of that. So if you're a private company or a private investor, you now look at an IPO and say, okay, well, if, if we go public and I feel confident about the team being able to execute, we could trade at a premium to what the M&A multiples are in the market. And then we could do a secondary offering or we could distribute our shares and get a better return. And so that dynamic is really interesting. It's sort of flipped traditional uh, logic on its head and it's really been playing out you know, for, for several many quarters now and, and really over three years. So I think people are starting to really understand this and investors that may previously have never considered an IPO are much more open to it. Jeff, you're on mute. Yeah, that's interesting. And there's been a lot of d- discussion on this. I've, I've heard CEOs of strategics and you know they have strong balance sheets. They're looking to put capital to work organically, inorganically. But when public companies are trading at such a premium to maybe the strategic valuation, so if a strategic's getting, you know, trading four times revenue and the target is 10 times, you know, do they suddenly get priced out of M&A? And I guess the question is, when do strategics decide that they're going to have to pay higher multiples? because these companies that they're passing on possibly earlier in the life cycle with access to so much capital in the public markets, you know, they're in effect creating much bigger competitive potential competitors or even more expensive takeover targets. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic. And, and, you know, I remember um, right after COVID hit, we were having meetings with, with business development folks on zoom and, and, there was there were multiple people that I spoke to in that role um, who were they weren't happy that we were in a pandemic, but they were relieved that these multiples were likely to really compress back to historical norms. And and the reason being, right, it's hard, as you said, for a, a large company that's trading at some multiple to justify paying two times that multiple or three times that multiple for a target company in the public markets. Um, But of course, what we've seen is right after that dip, you know, the market went back to where it was and then some. And so, you know, we're in this long-term dynamic where public companies are trading at really high multiples and it's, it's hard for these buyers to get their arms around that. So we have seen in, in certain examples more recently where companies that were getting ready to go public 
um, you know, had filed publicly and, and uh, were, were uh, everybody knew that they were ready to go, have been acquired prior to getting public because of this dynamic. You know, if they go public, there's a good chance that their multiple goes up significantly. And so we were on a deal as an example for a company called Preventus in the monitoring space. And Boston Scientific um, ended up buying them, you know, right before they went public. And, and that was really the reason. So we're starting to see more of that. And I think it's all driven by this, you know, this dynamic in the market, high growth med tech companies trading for, for historically high uh, valuations. And, you know, that definitely is a challenge for, for the buyers in the market in all different sectors. Yeah, that makes sense. When I think about like the perspective of a, a venture capital board member, and you, you, you mentioned like the time that a lot of these companies, by the time they go public, they've been in the, you know, it's taken 10 years. Often VCs, the life of their fund is 10 years where they are looking to invest, you know, the, the, a particular fund that they've raised over five years and then see exits in the, in the second five. And so, are you in your discussions with management teams and subsequently board members, are you seeing VCs think differently about IPO versus maybe a trade sale to a strategic? And if so, you know, what's the change been? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's sort of what, what I was mentioning before, which is I think um, I think these investors are much more open to an IPO as sort of a, a path to an exit, like a more viable path to an exit. I think if, if you talk to me five or more years ago, I remember so many investors saying when, when an IPO option would come up, they would say, well, an IPO isn't liquidity, right? It doesn't get us liquidity. Um, but these days, it, it gets you very close to liquidity, right? You can get public stock trades up significantly. There's tons of volume. And um, these companies, some have done, you know, secondary offerings to actually get liquidity. Silk Road is an example. Um, but others have just allowed these investors to distribute at really attractive outcomes, right? So, so, that dynamic has really changed. And I think, again, it's made the IPO market much more um, appealing vis-a-vis the historical view that M&A is the way to go and IPO, you know, it's not, li- it's not real liquidity. Um, it's challenging because execution is a huge risk and who knows how you're going to trade. And these days, it's, you know, it's more often than not, these companies have traded really well. Makes sense. And when companies complete a successful IPO, they execute and then decide to bring more capital into the business through a second offering. What's the average number of quarters of execution that you would advise or that you've observed on average where companies would then do that offering and and get maybe venture investors some liquidity? So there's a little bit of a difference there. There's, you know, a follow-on offering is one where you raise primary shares for the company. So let's say you do an IPO and you, you know, you raise a hundred million dollars and then the stock doubles. And then you say, we want to build our war chest. So you got, you may go out and raise another hundred million for the company, right? For your balance sheet. So that's a follow on. And those are, those have been done again, much more quickly than historical um, than we've seen in, in this historical cases because the stocks have performed so well. And so the company says, look, I, I just raised money at, you know, at 20 and now my stock's at 40. It's a prudent thing to do to, to shore up the balance sheet even more. Um, but the other, the other piece or the other um, offering that, that maybe you were talking about is a secondary offering where you have a deal where you may raise some primary proceeds, but you're also doing a, a deal where you're selling shares for current shareholders. And um, so that doesn't get any capital into the company. It's basically you're allowing uh, your current investors to sell in a more orderly fashion, because if they distribute their shares, 
you don't really know as the as the management team where those shares are going. But if you do a secondary offering, you have banks involved and they can place them with, with institutions that you're um, generally going to be more happy with. So it's that's probably a longer discussion. But that you know those all of those types of offerings have happened much more quickly because we've seen stocks um, move so much more quickly in a positive direction post deal. Well, thank you for that distinction. It makes a lot of sense because if a VC's reticence was that lack of liquidity and execution risk, but after doing the IPO, the banks that advised you on the offering, they knew that it was oversubscribed. There's a lot of demand and, and it had some belief that they could then do this very orderly private secondary it, w- it would seem to address some of those risks. And uh, is there any lockup period for something like a, a secondary private offering or trade? Yeah. So there's, so normally when you do an IPO, it's very typical to have 180 day lockup to so six months. Um, but the underwriters, if, if they so choose, the underwriters can release the company from the lockup to do an offering sooner than that. So again, it, if the stock performs really well and there's, they know there's demand out there, um, the company can talk to the underwriters and they're going to be more than happy to oblige because it's, you know, it's a, it's a transaction and it's, it's good for the company. It's good for the investors and it's good for the banks. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, you guys do good work. So in that case, 180 days, there's no lockup period. The underwriter doesn't really have to make a decision. Are you seeing people doing secondaries six months after, or sorry, uh, two or three months after the IPO, or is it coming up towards the six month window? Yeah. I mean, so one of the, I, I don't have that data handy, but there's definitely been a handful of deals that have happened before the lockup. So before that six month period. Um, but the other dynamic that we've seen is, a lot of the IPOs that have come out in this last three years, let's say this window, the companies have raised way more than they initially anticipated because there was so much demand for the deal. They were upsized, so they did it at a higher price and in some cases sold more shares than they planned to. So if you're going out to raise you know, $100 million and you end up raising $215 million, you're not going to need to go and raise more money in a follow-on for quite some time, if ever, frankly. So that has happened in many cases. Companies like Pulmonix and Inari, um, Silk Road have, have raised more than they, much more than they initially targeted. So, so that um, that has limited the number of follow-ons. But again, we've seen you know some secondary offerings where it was really just to get liquidity for were certain shareholders that had been in the companies for a long time. And, and it would be too early for a newly public company to do share buybacks. Investors probably wouldn't like that if, if they were, or, or is that something that's common? No, that's pretty, that's pretty rare. Okay. I All mean, right. they want it, they generally want more liquidity. So, so those are, those are, are not, um, that's not the way to do that. It's sort of the opposite. So. All right. So, um, Let's see. So this is something that I, I think just in terms of the current markets, this is kind of an eye chart um, if you're, you're trying to read this. But this is, this is basically a select group of medtech IPOs in the last three years. And some of the things I'd highlight. So um, overall, the average return here, 194%. So again, very positive returns. These are all revenue stage companies. So trending towards the right-hand side of that chart that I had earlier in terms of the the buckets of companies. Um, But what we've seen recently is there's been a little bit of um, uh, a little bit of volatility in this market, right? So if you look back here, you only have a couple deals that price below um, below their offering range. And then the last two deals have both priced below the range. And then the aftermarket performance, if you look here, the last two deals down on average, basically 22.5%. And three of the last five deals 
are down. And so that's, that's been pretty unusual if you look back at all these other companies. So we've definitely seen some softness. We weren't involved in either of these two most recent deals. Um, but, you know, I think they were, um, you know, they were at least, uh, Sinendo is a pretty good profile. You know, it's 30 million in revenue, um, growing, I think over 30%, we use 30% as a benchmark until the data comes out. Um, and, uh, you know, pretty interesting space, Minerva, a decent profile, probably a, a smaller market opportunity. So I, I think in general, you know, I think the market is taking a breather and, and we would expect the market to be probably soft for Mentec IPOs through the rest of the year. And then we believe that there will be a renewed um, appetite starting in 2022, assuming, you know, there's no big macro events. And then one other thing that, that I thought was relevant is just we highlighted in red the, the sort of orthopedic slash spine companies that have come out. And in general, you know, they've performed well. Paragon is a deal that we were involved in. Um, it has done well. It's up over 30%. It's a really a, a very nice company, $130 million in revenue. Treese is another one that has done well, up 36%. Um, Bioventus is now doing well. That's a little bit more, you know, mature company. So, so didn't price as well as some of the other ones. And then SI Bone, which is, you know, now been out for three years, but that's, I think, a really good, relevant company to think about for Providence. It's a, an innovative spine company that, um, you know, is, is growing fast and is not a full line spine company. I think those are the ones that the market likes to see and views them as more of, you know, more growth company versus a, a traditional spine company. And I think that's, that's important for investors. It's interesting in the case of Sonendo, I mean, they just priced, can you think of anything that happened? I know you said you weren't involved in it, but it's been a month. How, was there some news? Why? why I mean, people- it came out, it was down right away. Um, the first day. So I, I think, I, I just think there was a dynamic where investors had sort of said, we're, we want to be on the sideline right now. Um, MedTech investors. And the one thing I would call out is they have gross margins of 22.5%. And so they, they have a capital equipment model that um, with disposable and their disposables are not the typical high gross margin product right now. And they have a Gen 2 coming out that's going to be much more attractive, but it's not a, it's not a big piece of their business yet. So I think that probably was um, a headwind, but I, I think it's more that investors were just saying, look, we're not, we're not that excited to put more MedTech in our portfolio right now, um, despite you know, the, the, some of the things that we looked at earlier. And so I, I think that was just a broad sort of statement by investors saying we're, we're full right now. And I would expect, I, I would expect companies to be very uh, reticent to try to go out for the rest of this year. But again, I think next year things will things will start to pick up again. Yeah, it's interesting the, the orthopedic comps with Paragon and Trees, you know, both trading up since the IPO, both relatively recent. It's unique looking at the mean and the median of the EBITDA margin that both of those names had positive EBITDA margins at the time of the IPO and and great gross margins. But if you think about the roadshows and anything you know about these deals, were investors hoping that they would put more to work and actually be willing to, you know, fuel growth, even, even at, you know, negative EBITDA or is that a strength? So I think, yeah. I think for, I think more recently it's been a strength. And so we were, we were involved with Paragon and, and I think investors really like the fact that they were they're investing heavily into R and D and commercialization, and they've got enough revenue that you know they're starting. They should be starting to leverage their expenses. Um, so I think it was definitely a positive for them because their top line growth is still pretty attractive. You know they're going to grow twenty five percent next year. Post COVID, they had some COVID headwinds, and um, so they're able to grow the top line nicely and still be slightly profitable. 
Um, and that was, that was a great combination. Trees I'm, I'm less familiar with, but I, I suspect it was similar, although, you know, smaller, uh, smaller revenue maps for them. And the, I noticed the one column where you have, I mean, one of the discussions that comes up often is what percentage of the company that percent sold. It seems like the, the mean and the median, it, it's all about 27%. And so can you explain what that means? Yeah, I mean, we think of that as like 20 to 30% is the right range to think about. And basically, that's the amount of dilution for your current investors. So you're essentially selling 25% of the business to new investors in order to get public. And um, so that's how I think about it. It's, it's um, and you want to have, you definitely want to sell enough shares that you get, you get, you can have enough institutions participate in the deal. And that equates to liquidity at the end of the day, because once you're public, you know, you want new investors to be able to come in and find shares and, and, uh, and be able to take a position. Yeah. And so the average deal size is about $130 million. Have you seen companies that you thought maybe they should have sold more of the company, um, but there was dilution sensitivity and, and then it ended up hurting them because there wasn't enough float to, to get it, the right investor base? You know, it's funny you say that. I mean, I, historically, that was definitely something that we saw a lot of. Um, but these numbers, 124 to 134 million, those are, those are pretty big numbers for medtech IPOs. And some of the deals I mentioned, like Pulmonics, I think their initial target was 100 million. They raised 218 million. Um, uh, Outset Medical, I think they were targeting like 125 million. They raised 278 million. Acutus, we were involved in, they were targeting about 100 and raised 180. Inari, similar, 180 million. So, so what happened is, I think it was almost the opposite. These companies had so much demand. Um, and they decided, look, we'd rather shore up our balance sheet so we don't have to worry about financing again, maybe ever, right? And we've got a war chest and we can invest properly in the business and also look at um, M&A opportunities as they arise. Right. It makes, I mean, if you're an investor at five and it's private and it prices at 10, you probably don't care if 25% dilution. <laughs> yeah. And, and then it, right. if, if the pricing range is... 12, then yeah, it kind of makes sense. All right. Well, this, this is helpful. Good. I know we're running up a little bit on time here. Um, So um, I've got some SPAC information here. I'm not going to spend much time on it other than to say the SPAC market was gangbusters earlier in the year. You see these uh, blue charts were proceeds for SPACs. And it basically fell off a cliff in April. And the dynamic now is that um, when these deals, a lot of the de-spacking deals have been announced, on average, those stocks are trading below the $10 share price. And so it's difficult to get pipe investors to participate in those deals. So, So we've got a bunch of SPACs that are in the market looking for qualifying transactions and um, not a lot of of appetite for new investors to come in and, and support those deals. So um, it's pretty it's pretty challenging right now. Um, I guess the other piece of that as it relates to healthcare is of the SPACs that have um, that have announced deals, you know, about 10% are healthcare. So so there's not it's not a huge um, piece of the market. And of those deals, a very small percentage have been med tech deals. It's really more biotech companies. And the last thing I'd say is the, the shareholder redemptions have really increased. So this is, um, this is the orange is second half of 21. So now you've got 30%, over 30% of these companies having 80 to 100% redemptions. And so, again, that just means the, the investors are not pleased. The SPACs are trading below 10. And so people are not, um, you know, they're sort of running for the hills rather than wanting to participate. Um, and this is a little bit of data on, you know, some of the high growth med tech names. And, you know, as I said earlier, this isn't just a handful of companies and there are others, but 
there are a lot of med tech companies that are trading at very aggressive valuations. These companies are on average 13.7 to 14.3 times 2022 revenue. So, um, so I, I think it's a, it's definitely been a paradigm shift. This isn't like, Hey, it's happened for six months and there's a handful of companies. It's a broad swath. And, um, and if you're growing the top line fast, the average growth here, right? 25 to 28%, you've got the opportunity to really trade it at these multiples. And I think we're going to see that continue. So, so basically, because that oh, to me, Matt, sorry. that's very important. So this is not every med tech IPO, but the ones that are growing in that growth rate of, you know, 27 to in the, the high thirties, if you can fit this profile, which not everyone does, but the companies that are able to sustain those types of growth rates are getting over 12 times, 13 times forward revenue as a valuation. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it is unbelievable. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, we could have put more companies into this universe and, you know, they're granted, these are not all um, orthopedic names by any stretch, but, um, but Vericelli, you know, that's sort of where the biologics got orthopediatrics here, got trees here, um, Paragon 28. So, you know, there's a, there's a good, good group and, um, and there's a, a decent representation within the ortho world as well. Um, and then this is the, the spine universe that you know, well, and I think, you know, there's, it's a mixed bag here, but again, companies who are growing fast, like Alphatech, SI Bone, Globus, they also are, are being valued as, as growth companies. And, you know, several years ago, spine was, was really in a, a tough position where you wouldn't have seen these. And, and I think it's, it's definitely changed. Although, um, I think on the M&A front, maybe I'll, I'll end on that um, just in the interest of time. If you look at selected spine M&A transactions, I still think that the deals that are getting done at attractive valuations are the ones that are differentiated. So it's, we're not seeing a lot of the sort of full line spine companies getting acquired for big numbers. You know, K2M was, was uh, an exception to that. And they did a great job of sort of playing up the complex spine piece of their business. And, and so I think being a company that's very focused with innovative uh, products are the ones that the, you know, both the big and the mid-sized players are going to continue to be interest, interested in going forward. Excellent. Well, Matt, this has been extremely helpful. I always enjoy our discussions and thanks for being a guest on Unmet Need. Absolutely. Uh, it was my pleasure and look forward to, to staying in touch.